Rock and Roll Suicide, performed by David Bowie. There was death in the air. It was a comment that Gina Tipton had made before the show, and Kenny Franklin had thought nothing of it. Gina the Gypsy, as she used to be called back in her hippie days, had a reputation for making spooky predictions. A day later, Franklin would remember Gina's words and what they portended, but he currently had other things on his mind. Franklin, who held the all-important job of acting as Flame's tour manager, signed off on the Union time cards and sent the crew home. The stage was clean, and the tour was done. The show had been a success, such as it was, and the meet-and-greet had gone more or less smoothly. Flame, of course, had gotten into volatile arguments with no less than three different individuals before and after the show. But all things considered, the tour ended on an upbeat note. Hey, Kenny, called Lewis, the band's monitor and guitar tech. He held up a bank money bag. What do I do with this? Franklin frowned. Oh, shit, didn't I'll take that with him? Lewis shrugged. I guess he didn't, I have it. Damn. Franklin took the heavy bag from his assistant. The bag held the night's receipts and concession money. I'm flying to Nashville tomorrow morning. I don't want to be stuck with this. Can you take it to Flame's office tomorrow? Lewis shook his head. I'm driving out to my folks' place in Jersey as soon as I get out of here. I'm on vacation now. Franklin cursed. That means I have to drop by there tonight. All right, Lewis. See you next time. Stay out of trouble. You too, Kenny. Franklin held on to the bag and turned the theater over to the venue's stage manager to lock up. He went out the stage door and walked towards Broadway where he had hoped to catch a cab. It was nearly two in the morning, but surely there would be some taxis on such a major thoroughfare. New York City never slept. He waited only two minutes. He flagged down a cab heading north and got in the back seat. Turn her around. We gotta go to Greenwich Village, he told the driver. Without a word, the driver slapped the meter and took off. At the light, he made an illegal U-turn and drove south on Broadway. The going was smooth until the cab reached Columbus Circle, where several NYPD patrol cars sat with lights flashing. An officer slowly waved cars through a roadblock and prevented any from turning east on 57th Street. What's going on? The cab driver asked the officer as he moved past him. The Jimmy's pulled another show at the bottom of Central Park. Keep moving, sir. The cab moved on and continued south. Those lunatics, the driver said. Damn it, those nutty cousins ought to be shot on sight. Franklin came close to agreeing. The Jimmies and the Cousins were relatively new phenomena in New York City. Technically, they were mysterious, ruthless, and very violent rival gangs that vied for control of the illegal drug trade in the metropolitan area. And like most gangs, they had their share of responsibility for thefts, vandalism, and murders. On the other hand, they were rock bands that kept their identities secret. The Jimmies were punks that made the Sex Pistols look like the Partridge family. They wore grotesque masks, supposedly made from the skin of corpses, patterned after the Leatherface character from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. The cousins fashioned themselves after the black leather look of the Hamburg-area Beatles. Beneath their greasy, slick-back hair, the cousins wore black face masks and specialized in 1950s rock and roll. Both bands occasionally held impromptu guerrilla concerts around the city, using stolen portable equipment that they destroyed and left behind when the police arrived. These happenings attracted a very rough crowd, and a riot almost always ensued during and after one of these bands' so-called performances. They frequently started fires and damaged public property. Sometimes there were deaths. Thus, 
the band's sets were never very long. By the time the Jimmies or cousins had played three songs, the police were already on the way. The gangs then enjoyed leading the cops on wild and reckless chases through the city streets, usually on motorcycles. To date, none of the major players in either group had ever been caught, and no one knew who the leaders were. Any arrests made were usually of street soldiers who were bailed out quickly by high-powered attorneys, just like in the old days of the mafias. Franklin forgot about the Jimmies and the cousins as soon as the cab entered Greenwich Village. Flame lived in a three-story townhouse on Charles Street between 7th Avenue and Bleecker Street. The bottom floor was the office of Flame Productions, and it had a separate entrance from the living quarters on the top two floors. It was one of Flame's three homes. Franklin had spent some time at the mansion in Hollywood, but had never been to the flat in London. 